if you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. This is another of our popular Listener's Choice interviews, which we're playing over the weekend. We've chosen the most popular interviews for you to select the Listener's Choice winner. If you're not sure how the Listener's Choice competition works, have a look at horsechats.com slash choice for the rules and the leaderboard. Today's guest is Lee Beerman. Lee's been a previous guest. She's given us an overview on episode 011, and then she's come back as a listener's choice. So the listener's choice episode is 156, and the listener's choice, of course, is our more popular episodes. We repeat them on the weekends. Today, we're going to talk with Lee about the 10 reasons why riders should compete in dressage events. How are you today, Lee? I'm great. Thanks, Glennis. Great. Lee, we're going to talk about the first one. Okay, so we've got 10 reasons. We'll go through them first and then we'll sum up at the end. But the first one is competing helps to provide motivation for training. So can you explain a little bit about that and how competing provides motivation for training? Yeah, sure, Glennis. I'd just like to say at the beginning, I realise this is controversial. I've got a very dear friend who's trained horses up to Grand Prix and has never competed in her life. It's just not what she wants to do. So I understand there are people who are not really interested in the competition component of our sport, but I think it's important, and that's why I've chosen this topic. The reason, number one reason, I think, is that it provides motivation. So for me, it's one thing to be at home and to go through the movements and train your horse and say, okay, that's progressing and that's progressing. It's another thing altogether to go out before a judge or two judges, and get their feedback. It might be a bit different from what you think. So I think by going out and competing, you get feedback about how your training is going, and then you can go away what I see, how I see it as being motivated to say, okay, I thought it was okay, but these guys have said this and this needs to be better. I'm going to train now to make those things better. So it provides a motivation for training and then to make them better, then go out and face the judges again. And I, I understand about the nerves. I had nerves as well. And, and you know, not, not eating for three days beforehand and feeling like you're going to vomit and all the rest of it. But believe me, it may seem hard to, hard to believe to some people, but that eventually passes and going out and competing becomes exciting. And that's what I try and say to my students, you know, do you think you're going to be killed? And most of them say no. And I say, well, then you're not nervous, you're just excited. So try and see that nervousness as a positive thing rather than a negative thing. But it does pass. And I certainly, for me, in my case, having a competition provides that motivation to keep going with the training and getting the feedback and keep progressing. Yep. And and I think also too, you know, if we've got listeners that do get nervous, it's nice knowing that from a Grand Prix rider who's ridden in, I don't know how many tests, you know, I'm sure that you wouldn't be able to count them, <laughs> but, to uh, you know, eventually, eventually the nerves do disappear and they get less and less and then just disappear. So that's yes, great. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Now, the next one that we've got, it's tests the correct response to the AIDS in a strange environment. So can you talk about what AIDS are as well as talking about testing them in a strange environment? Yeah, for sure. I think that the difference is that you're at home on your own little safe arena 
and you're riding around or you're where you normally train and you're riding around and you do something, say, like a canter trot transition, you think, oh, it was a little bit unbalanced, but it was okay, it's near enough. Then you go out to a, a competition where there's different sorts of distractions, horses winning and people moving around. Can you keep your horse's attention and get those transitions how you would like? And I think a, a very good coach once said to me, you need to be training at home 120% to get 80% when you're out. Mm-hmm. So that's the difference that being out makes. So it's another sort of test. And it does test whether your horse is genuinely on your aids and obedient to your aids, or is it just that it's in a familiar environment, everything's okay, but if you go somewhere else, it's not. So it's another test sort of of your training and of your horse's obedience to take it into a foreign atmosphere and still have its focus totally on you. Yep, yep. Now, we're going to talk now about testing the effectiveness of half halts and performing movements precisely at a marker. But can you tell us about the markers? Where, you know, as we go past a marker or a letter, in racing, it's the horse's nose. Is it the horse's nose or where is it as you go past the marker? Yeah, sure. It used to be in the olden days when I was competing and you probably weren't born, it used to be <laughs> the horse's nose. But now it's actually the rider. The requirement for the test is that you make your transitions, you begin your movements and so on, when the rider is level with the marker. So that way the horses with long or short necks didn't make any difference. Yes. Um, it was uh, the rider being able to make some movement precisely when the rider's at the marker. Mm-hmm. And, of course, to do that, you have to have a very high degree of control. And that control shows up in how effective your half holes are. Now, I know people hear, hear the term half-halt and they sort of cringe and think, oh, it's so mystical, I don't understand it, you know, so many professional riders who use them. And that's not really the case. A half-halt is just what its name says. It's a half of a halt. So I dictate to riders when they're learning the term and the application of the term, I just say, think, pretend halt, then change your mind. Pretend to halt and change your mind. And the pretend to halt is applying the half-halt And then you're changing your mind is relaxing a little and listening to the horse's response. And then if you need it, another half hold. And that's a very important concept because some people apply the half hold, hang on, and then apply another half hold. So then it just becomes pulling on the horse's mouth. Whereas if you can think, I do one half hold, finish it, and then I do the next one and finish that one and then do the next one. So that's an important thing about the half hold, learning how to apply it. The other thing, and Andrew McLean proved this, and I know you had him on previous series, I think he's a genius and he's somebody who our sport owes a huge debt of gratitude to for what he's done. He's gone and tested all of the old training methods that we had and we used for years and years and years. He's gone and tested the science behind them. Mm-hmm. And with the half halt, what he showed was that a horse can only answer one aid at a time. So the old dressage rule book used to say a half halt was the simultaneous application of the driving and restraining aid. Well, Andrew proved that a horse can only answer one aid at a time. So he answered either the driving or the restraining aid. So they actually changed the wording in the rule book. And now it says an almost <laughs> simultaneous application of the driving and restraining aid. Sounds a bit like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It? <laughs> it does. An almost simultaneous application. So he proved that you need to either close your feet and legs and then and even a nanosecond later close your fingers 
or the reverse, if that's what works with your horse, and then release a little, listen to the horse's response, and then do it again. So it's an important part, important example of how the science directs us in our training. Mm -hmm. Now, if you don't have a correct half halt, then it's going to be very difficult for you to make a transition when your body is left with a marker. And the example I was talking about, for instance, canter to trot, and it's a good example because that comes in the last of the prep tests and all through prelim, and then it comes all the way through our competition levels right to Grand Prix, um, the transition from collected canter to collected trot C in the Grand Prix test. So the same um, exercises examined all the way through so that shows how important it is and the only way to do that correctly is to be able to adjust your canter speed to trot speed before you trot because the canter is faster than the trot if you just pull on the reins and slow the horse's legs down the momentum for the faster canter is still in the horse's body and so it acts like a breaking wave on the shore the top of the horse sort of falls over the bottom of the horse and he loses balance. And that was why you get those few running steps in the first few steps of the trot. And then the horse gradually finds the balance again and goes into the trot that you want. Yeah. So the only way to correctly ride that transition is to prepare with half halts and adjust the speed of the canter to trot speed. So I like to say, pretend halt, pretend halt, pretend halt, and trot. And the pretend to ride a halt is the half halt action. Okay. And you can feel when the horse comes into balance, you can feel it in your body. The weight shifts a little to the back, the canter slows down a little bit, it comes a little bit more off the ground. And then the proof is when you ride the transition to trot, the horse is in balance. It's not like a giant belly flop. And then you can estimate how many half halts you need to do it at a marker. So going in a competition situation where you have to do everything at a marker sharpens up the effectiveness of your half holes. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. That's good. And just going back to Andrew McLean, who has been previous guest on a number of times and also been listener's mm. choice, he not only is a great competitor, has been a competitor at a high level, he's also then scientifically proven things or disproven, you know, so he's got that whole practitioner scientist background mm. and I think the practitioner scientist background is so important yeah rather than somebody who's just a scientist oh that's right a scientist can come in and prove yeah. all sorts of things but if they don't work in the field then no one's going to adapt them and use them yep. yeah 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 and the other good thing about him is if you're sick of riding horses he's proved it all works with elephants as well <laughs> yes <laughs> yes that's right that's right all right now we're going on to number four here and we've got Testing steering, you know, steering, the terminology that it's knowing and following an exact line. So if you can talk about some of the types of lines that you would follow and what you mean by that and being able to know and follow that exact line, that'd be great. Yeah, I think so too. And this is probably one of the most basic things that a competition can test. So say you're riding just a 20-meter circle at home mm -hmm. and you can say, yeah, okay, that's a 20-meter circle. You go out to a competition and the judge might say circle not even. So you find out that one half of the circle was bigger than the other half of the circle. While you at home, you, it was near enough, so it was good enough. Once you get under the, into the competition arena, then an independent person is going to look at your circle and say, yes, that's correct, or say, well, no, that's not correct. 
Now, if you're not on the correct line, it's one of two things or both. It means, first of all, that you can't steer the horse onto that line. And it's nice to be able to steer exactly where you want to go. It's safer to be able to steer exactly where you want to go. So going in a competition tests your steering. And the other thing it tests is, do you know where the line is? So that tests, have you been doing your homework? And there's a lot of homework in dressage, learning where the correct line is. But riding the correct line is one of the first things that shows the amount of control you've got, shows how effective your half halts are, shows how effective your aids are, because you can steer the horse on the correct line and make the transitions and be in the correct gait. So I think it does test your steering. And while some people might say, oh, yeah, I can ride around an arena, but can you ride exactly around an arena? Four straight sides, four correct corners without the gate changing all the way around, without the horse's outline changing all the way around. So just steering is tested. But like I said, at home you might be saying, oh, well, that's near enough, or I think that's right. Go out and see if the judge thinks it's right as well. It's funny, if you talk generally about being in a sport where you can regularly get lost and your accuracy is very important, it's almost like you're out in the wilderness somewhere, you know, and you've got to get your compass out and get your accuracy, but your accuracy really is can win or lose a test, can't it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, Mm -hmm. because it does, it demonstrates your control and the horse's training and that you know where your things are. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. We'll talk about those letters a bit later. Okay. Um, Now, we've got number five here. It encourages fellowship and a sense of community. Yeah, I think it's like like anything. Like um, I think of when uh, ages ago when I was a mother with a young child and and you go to a play group or something and suddenly you're a bunch of other mothers with young children and you find out that yours is not an abnormal little monster. It's just a normal um, sort of (laughs) two-year-old. And you feel more at ease and you feel like you are part of the community. And I think going out to competitions, it's pretty much the same thing. You go out and you think, oh, I'm so nervous. And then everybody around you says, I'm really nervous. I didn't have breakfast and I haven't eaten lunch for three days. And you find out that everybody's the same as you. And then when you get your test, the, the elation of just finishing a test and doing the best job you can do, it doesn't matter if you win or lose, you do the best test you can do. That's a really good positive feeling. And you can share that with other people who understand that point of view. Mm-hmm. And I know, especially amongst the FEI riders, there is a sense of community. Everybody's you know, up there at the top and struggling with trying to get their marks or qualifications for world championships or something. And everybody is quite supportive of each other. And that spirit runs right through the sport. And the best people involved in the sport, of course, it's some snags, mm-hmm. like anything. But, yeah, most people are really supportive. You'll ride out of a test and they'll say, oh, that looks really good. And, or they'll, you'll ride up, put your horse away. Oh, how did you go? Or, oh, yeah, mine did that too. How about it? And, da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. and it just makes you feel, like I say, a part of a community. And yep. it's, a, it's a positive aspect of the sport, I think. Stop. I need to interrupt this chat for a hot-off-the-press notification. That is that the latest version of the book, 101 Careers in the Horse Industry, is now available and the best news is that it's a free download. So if you work in the horse industry, if you have a plan to work in the horse industry and have a career in the horse industry, or if you know someone who plans to have a career in this fabulous industry, then this is an essential book for you to read now 
and then keep as a reference as you progress through your career. With over 100 jobs to choose from, you'll probably find at least one that you'd happily do without being paid. So simply go to internationalhorsecollege.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on the 101 careers in the horse industry button to receive your free career book. Imagine, maybe one day you could be a guest on Horse Chats. And I think too, you know, when you've when you're at a competition and there's quite a few different levels within the competition, it's nice to see the higher level riders just giving the younger riders a bit of a hand, you know, just to give them a bit of a hint yeah, or yeah. just try this at home or just, you know, it happens quite regularly. I know that you as a Grand Prix rider do, you know, do this and help other riders as well. So it does, it gives the people coming in that whole sense of community as well. Yeah, mm. yeah, that's right. It's not an impossible task. Mm. It's actually an enjoyable journey. Yep. And I've got another one here, number six, which is, you know, possibly related to that, but it develops sportsmanship. Yeah, I think think in its best possible mode, that's exactly what competition does. And I think any competition run properly, conducted properly and participated in properly develops sportsmanship. And by sportsmanship, I think that the idea that your fellow competitors are as important as what you are and that how you treat your fellow competitors is how you'd like to be treated. And in our sport, also you treat your horse how you'd like to, um, if you were in his situation or her situation, how you'd like to be treated. So we've got the two elements, our fellow competitors and also the animals that we work with. And I think the best quality of sport is is development of sportsmanship. Mm. Yeah, caring about how everybody else goes, not just yourself. And that can only come from competing. You only get that experience when you compete. Yeah. We often think of um, riding as an individual sport, but it's not. It's a team sport because the horse is there, you know, and you've got to work as a team. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. If you're an equestrian coach or a horse riding instructor, or even if you aspire to be one, have a look at the free video series for horse riding instructors on the Horse Chats website. Go there now. Have a look. Horsechats.com. All right, now the next one is number seven. So where it enables riders to contribute to the growth of their sport through being involved with conducting the event. So how does that work when someone comes in to compete, but then they're helping conduct the event or they're being involved with it? How does that work? Well, I think most clubs are always looking for volunteers, always looking for helpers, Mm. and our sport probably even more so because we've got the horses to consider as well, so we have to have somebody looking after stables or yards or checking the surface or whatever. So uh, it takes a lot of people to run an event, and I think it's important when people come into the sport that they realise that, and again, it can establish that camaraderie I was talking about before. So, for instance, I work with the three other ladies, and we run the Members' Days competitions for the Kabulchie Dressage Group, and anybody who comes along to that competition has to do a job. So we have people coming along and riding, maybe for the first time ever, competing in their life. And then on the day, they'll actually do another job. It might be collecting sheets. It might be writing for the judge. It might be putting the gear out. So you have to learn where the letters go or whatever. And, you know, many jobs are available. And I think by getting people involved right in the beginning of the sport, in the actual running of the sport, they can appreciate how much effort it takes to put an event on, but they also um, see other aspects of the sport. It's it's one thing for you to go out and ride your test, 
it's a different thing to come back and then sit with the judge while she judge, or he or she judges the next 10 competitors in that test. So you get the feedback and the feel and the look how the test looks from the judge's point of view, not just from the top of the horse. Yep. So yep. I think people get multi-skilled, <laughs> but they also get to contribute back to help the sport grow because yeah. without the volunteers, it just doesn't happen. I'm just thinking about the amount that you're contributing back because you're running competitions and clinics and you're doing lots, lots of, you're involved quite a lot with the sport, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very excited. I rode my first test in two and a half. I've been quite sick, as you know. Yeah. Well, if you if anyone goes back to the previous interview, you might think that Lee wasn't going to be riding again, but you've started <laughs> riding again, which is brilliant yeah. news. So yeah. yeah, keep talking about that. Yeah, yeah. And I wrote, just went to a member's day last weekend first time in oh, nearly three years that the horse or I have competed and um, I was just so excited. I rode the into one and I, I rode sort of one and a quarter into one test in the end because I said to the judge, every time we don't get something right, I'm going to go back and repeat it. So, of course, I had several errors, of course, but it was just so exciting for me because I was told I'd well, I was told I wouldn't live first mm. and then I was told I, I would never compete again. So just to be out there and just to have the air to do a whole test, an into-one test, and repeat the mistakes. I was just so excited. And I had these lovely friends around me who all came up and congratulated me. I think other people might have thought it was quite strange when there's a big E against your name and everybody's congratulating you. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, it was great. That's okay. good. And that's a good thing about our sport. Even old broken people like me can still mm-hmm. get up and have a go. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and you're also, but you're contributing to conducting the events. You're, you're helping conduct them and running clinics and doing all those things as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was a founding member of NAGS. My membership is number two after Tony Cooper, yep. which is the North Coast Active Riders Group, which is the original, well, the second ever Active Riders Group formed in Queensland after Bard. Mm. And I was on that for like 40 years or something. And now I'm with the Kabuchi Dressage Group as well, and I live down here, so we're running the Members' Day. And then Amanda Matheson and I have started a little group called Foddies, Friends of Dressage, <laughs> and um, we meet of it the last Tuesday of each month at the QSEC Indoor at the State Equestrian Centre here, and anybody can come along to those days. I think it costs $5 or something. And you can ride around in our beautiful indoor arena and um, we run a group lesson if anybody wants a lesson, but there's no necessity. You can just come and ride if you want to. And that's the last Tuesday of every month mm. at the State Equestrian Centre. And Fotties is just what it says, a friendly group of people who like dressage. Yeah, yeah. So, mm. Okay, so I can see how our riders, you know, can contribute to the growth there. If we go on yeah. to number eight, we've got, it's opening up other educational pathways to riders. So writing, judging, stewarding, scoring, coaching. Would you like to talk about that? Yeah, I think once you get involved as a rider, and if you have any spare time, which is miraculous, <laughs> you can actually learn other things. As I said before, just writing for a judge is quite an involved skill, and the higher you go, the more involved it gets. And then there's opportunities to write for international judges at the CDI and so on. So you get to hear points of view that you might not have been otherwise exposed to. Stewarding is an actual NOAS training course and you can train to be a steward and your main priority then is caring for the welfare of the horse, just making sure at major events the horse's welfare is the first thing and you then have the right to go and interrupt people if you think that they're behaving in an excessive way towards their horse and, yeah, you can 
safeguard the horses that are out there competing. So that's another course, stewarding. Yeah, and just just scoring. That's all done by computers these days. So that's another skill you can learn. Mm-hmm. So there is there is a chance for other pathways to open up. And even if you can't compete, you get to a point where you can't compete, then there's always other ways you can contribute to the sport. If you can sit in a car and write, you can be a writer, you know, yeah. and a pencilist and a judge. So there is lots of opportunities that the sport opens up for people once they get involved. And the other thing is too that even if you're not a rider but you're a support person, you know, maybe your partner rides or your child rides or something, you can still be involved in the sport and contribute to the sport that way. Yeah, absolutely, and learn a new skill. You know, extend your own education by learning new skills, yeah, yep. for sure. And you'll be welcome with open arms. And then <laughs> the final skill is committee membership. <laughs> yes. We won't talk about that. <laughs> Okay, number nine, it grows the base of the support, so the top of the pyramid is improved. Would you like to just explain that a bit further? Yeah, absolutely. This has been my bugbear for years and years and years, that um, when the sport is maintained as an elitist sport with you know funding and opportunities going only to the top professional riders, mm, yes. then the sport doesn't grow in numbers. So when you get to pick an Australian team for a world championships or an Olympics, in the olden days, we'd only have four people doing the Grand Prix. Mm. So that became our team. It was just who happened to get there. But now since it took us 10 years, since I started the movement for amateur owners, but 10 years later, we now have the amateur owner, which gives people who aren't professionals, who are doing it as well as a full-time job, it gives them an avenue they can compete against people in the same situation. And the professionals compete against professionals. The amateurs compete against the amateurs. If they want to cross over and go against the professionals, they can. Otherwise, they have their own stream of the sport to compete in. And that goes right up to a national championship. The National Amateur Owner Championship, first one ever, was held at QSEC last year. Mm -hmm. And it's on at the Queensland Equestrian Centre again this year, the National Amateur Owner Championship. So it gives the people, yeah, like I said, who are trying to do a full-time job or even a part-time job and ride and compete as well. It gives them an avenue. And overseas, in Germany, for instance, not only are the riders classified as amateur or professional, but the horses are as well. And that's a little bit down the track for us because we just don't have the numbers. Sure, yeah, I think that's really opened it up. So that then those amateurs then, because they've been introduced to the sport, some of them go, yeah, I can take this on and start to get more professional, start to compete at professional level. So now when we're picking an Australian team, there'll be, you know, 20 or 30 horses doing Grand Prix and then 15 of those will get their qualification, their national qualification, and then eight of those will be eligible, you know, have been in the financial position to go overseas. And so then the team is picked from that Mm. instead of just being only those who make it through. There's now a real choice at the top. And I think that's a much better use of the funding that goes into that. And I think directing funding at the lower end of the sport as well, at the amateur level, is really important to just build those numbers. Yep, yep. If you're an equestrian coach or a horse riding instructor, or even if you aspire to be one, have a look at the free video series for horse riding instructors on the Horse Chats website. Go there now. Have a look. Horsechats.com. All right, now you've got number 10 here. It enables growth of the sport. Example, AO classes, prep classes, welfare developments and international connections. Yeah, 
So once you have the numbers, of course, then you can get funding Mm -hmm. and then you can attract sponsorship. And once you've got money in the golden gateway to everything in sport, once you've got some money, then you can start to extend the sport. But even with the limited funding that we have, because of the numbers that have increased in the sport, and you just got to go and see the number of horses being towed around the street on, sure. a, on a weekend. Because of that, we've been able to say, okay, we've got this many horses now coming in at preliminary level, first level. What about separating the ones who are out there for a first time? So it might be a horse and rider combination competing for a very first time, or it might be even a professional rider, but on a very young and inexperienced horse. So now they have prep classes so that you can go out and just feel your way. In, right there in the beginning. So that's one way the sport expanded. Those prep classes have only been in in the last few years. Mm-hmm. The division between amateur owner and professional owner, that's been an expansion of the sport. Even selecting the tests, how that they're graded now, the national tests, that's been directed at the steady progression from, from the beginning through to heading the horses towards Grand Prix. So that can only happen when you have a sufficient number of people committed to the sport and supporting it by competing or by acting as one of the background helpers. So growing the numbers gives you the opportunities to go to expand upwards, but also sideways and try to embrace everybody into the sport. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. That's good. That's great, Lee. I have to ask you, though, and this is a question that comes up particularly to people very new to the sport of dressage. They come in, they go to a competition, they understand the horse has got to be going well and you've got to do all, you know, these things within the test and they look at the letters and go, these letters don't make any sense. Where's A, A, B, C? Where's D? And you've got E. And then, you know, they sort of go through like that. So can you give us a bit of an extra bit here about the origin of the dressage letters? Yeah, sure, Glennis. I, I wish I had a dollar for every time I was asked about this. <laughs> not only that, that, not only that, you have somebody helping you put an arena up for the first time, and they say, "Why is it six meters and twelve meters? Why yes. isn't it five meters and ten meters?" Because <laughs> then you've got a twenty meter circle and a five meter loop and a ten meter circle, and then everything is in sixes and twelves. Mm. You know, why is that so? I haven't heard the answer to that. I'm wondering if it's a conversion from yards to meters or something, which it might be. Um, yeah, there's a lot of different explanations about the letters. The one that I've heard most often is that it goes back to King Leopold's time. And of course, he had an extensive stable of horses. And the horses were stabled like in a rectangle with a quadrangle in the middle. And what I heard was that each horse he was going to ride for that day was tied up at a certain spot. And so the letters represent the first letter of the name of the horse. And that's why they're not in an ABC fashion. They were in the horse's name fashion. I know the first one that was established was X and A, and then it extended from there. And when I first started, we worked in a 20 by 40 meter arena, and then the the arena was extended. But I know you were telling me that you'd heard the same quadrangle and King Leopold story, but the letters were his family. Was that correct? No, like K the king, and then there was the knight and the first, you know. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. so, so they were the positions, in the the posi- yeah. positions of yeah. the riders. Yeah, the positions yeah. of the riders yeah. held. Mm. Yeah, okay. So there's another one. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So I, it's sounding like King Leopold was in some way responsible. Yep, yep. So when, when you're getting upset because the letters don't make any sense, just think of King Leopold and send him a letter. 
Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, and I, I think they were. Now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, yeah, look, Lee. Uh, yeah, there's a variety of explanations, but certainly the distances doesn't make any sense at all. But that's yeah. how it is. Yeah, yeah. Now, just a bit of an update because in your, you know, your previous episode, which was, you know, sort of six months or so ago, you weren't particularly well. Your your update, your plans might have changed a little bit. You're a bit more active now. So, do you want to give us a quick update on what you're doing before we say goodbye? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, they have changed. As I said, we've taken on the running of the members' days at Caboolture Dressage Group. The next one's on the 27th of May, and that's going to be in the indoor. So if you're a member of that group or if you're interested in these days, you need to join the group, have a look on their website, and you'll find all that information. Um, Fighting is just a voluntary thing. There's no group to join. That's just Friends of Dressage. That's just um, run by Amanda Matheson and I, and that's the last Tuesday in each month at QSEC. So, again, We've got a Facebook page, even though Facebook is out of fashion today, if, if you want to go on there and have a look. Okay. So what's, what's the Facebook page called? It's just Friends of Dressage Fodys, okay. F-O-D-Y-S. Yep. Yeah. And I'm an EA Level 3 Dressage Specialist Coach, so I run clinics and whatever, plus protocol days so that you can tidy your test up and those sort of things and teach so there's that aspect as well. Plus, I'm a Grand Prix level judge, so I judge all over the place. I'm off to Tasmania in two weeks, and then up to Townsville and whatever. So yeah, pretty involved with the sport and just cranking back up to full speed. <laughs> okay, and if you've missed any of those contact details, they'll be on horsechats.com/slash/leebeerman, which is Lee's original interview. But this time they'll be on horsechats.com/slash/leebeerman two. Or just go to horsechats.com and search for Lee, L-E-A, and you'll find those episodes. All right. Thanks for talking to us today, Lee, and thanks for telling us about the 10 reasons why riders should compete in dressage events, and hopefully we'll talk to you again sometime soon. Yeah, no problem. Thanks very much, Bonus. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Now, if you're still there, you probably know that I'm absolutely passionate about education within the horse industry. That's why I host this podcast. My other venture is Online Horse College. Have a look now at onlinehorsecollege.com and I'll see you over there. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below 